a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All righty then. It appears the clock says it's uh, wrong think o'clock. I've got Gary Welch joining me. Hi, Gary. Hi, Brian. I like wrong think o'clock. Yeah. That's my time. Truth be told, it's always wrong think o'clock, or at least whenever it's needed. But uh, here we are. Our program is brought to you in part today by Alta Bank, as well as by uh, my good friends at... Uh, oh, great. That's right. That's exactly when the, uh, when the uh, name would escape me. It's my friend Steve Burgess. No, don't don't give me a hint here. I'll, I'll get it. it. Jeez. Do you, do you ever get the memory lapse, Gary? Can you admit it? Yes. Your, your brain slips on you. This is this is so ridiculous. And, and, and it's Landmark. That's the name I could not come up with. Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. But now that you know it, now that I've had to think about it, I put it into the show notes and you can actually access contact to, for both Alta Bank and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance right there. Holy cow. I need some brain food today. Well, that's why I have Gary on the show. Um, first of all, how are you doing? I'm all ready for the holidays. I am yeah. uh, ready for 2020 to end. I'm absolutely for ready for that. Do you and think 2021 is going to be better? I, I, I mean, I know that's a loaded question, but uh, optimistic? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's good. I am. I, I think there is going to be an economic downturn, but I think it will be temporary and uh, short-lived. And then in the end, I think we come... We come out of this. I'm not 100% positive we're going to do right things to correct the wrong, but that's part of why you and I are here to help that. We can't correct the past, but we can make sure it does not happen in the future. Okay, fair enough. And actually, I think we have some really fun stuff to discuss today. You had mentioned uh, when we were, were consulting about what to talk about, uh, maybe uh, wargaming an idea of how would Governor Hyde have handled the COVID crisis? And, and Gary, I, I'm just going to admit right up front, probably not very well. I don't know. I, I don't think I would have resorted to well, we lock it all down and we make everybody into potential criminals. But but there was just so much unknown. So I'm 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 okay to role play that with you, but uh, but I'm I'm also sitting here with my bib on and you know fork in hand, ready to eat some humble pie. Well, the the purpose of the exercise is to kind of show everyone the processes that a lot of politicians go through, because there's a lot of things to consider. And we, we sometimes don't look at that big picture. But also, I wanted to point out to everyone when it came to the COVID crisis as it was starting to unfold. And by March, when they started putting out these draconian measures, there was a lot of information out there. It wasn't like they were acting in a vacuum. There was quite a bit of information that they knew, and yet they made these decisions. And I think that's the thing that we have to look at. And what I'm, I'm hoping to point out is maybe I, I have this opinion that both sides of this were wrong and that you and in this is where you and I may disagree. 
where we had the one side that said, let's just lock everything down. Let's do all these stupid government things and, and we'll stop the disease because we're gods and we can, we can stop these things. And then the other side was don't do anything. Don't do nothing at all. Just let it go. And I think both were wrong. I think both would have had tragic consequences, but I wanted to go through this exercise to just kind of show that because you know, you're, you're very strong on Liberty. You're very strong on, on, you know, keeping government out of it. And by working with you down this line, I think I'll communicate to a lot of Liberty minded individuals about there's, there's the theoret- theoretical where we want to be. And there's where we're at now, right now. And we have to take a look at that. Okay. Fair enough. Where would you like to begin? So let's just start that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to role play your governor Hyde, because we know so well the, the two of us uh, about the state of Utah, we're going to make that you're the governor of Utah. But I can just tell you right now, this could be applied. Everyone play along with us. You're going to be governor <laughs> so-and-so. I'm your health director, and you're in your state because this can play out in California, New York, Illinois, everywhere. It could, Indiana, it all can play out there, and this same thing are going to happen because they all have the same information. So what we're going to do is your governor Hyde, it is March 2020, and we know we have something serious here. We know we have something deadly, but we have to make some decisions about how we are going to react to it. So what I'm going to tell you is the public information, what we knew in March of 2020, just in in the general public. It wasn't widespread and it wasn't well-known but you would have definitely been access this. And I'm going to act as your health director, like the person that has this information. And I'm going to tell you just some things of what we do know. And then we could kind of go from there saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay. All right. So we will start with the projections. There were approximately five projections that were being promoted. Now we don't have the details of those projections, but we do have some information on that. So what I'm going to do is just give you kind of the ideas of what the projections were at this time. All of these projections were based on if we do nothing. If we just let this thing go, here's what's going to happen. On the low end was 200,000 deaths. There wasn't really any projections at that time that was any lower than that that was really out there. Now, on the high end was the ones that were put out by the Brits, 1.3 million deaths here in the United States for that. And by this time, this was already coming under fire. There were already a lot of people coming out and saying, man, this guy's methodology is wrong and he's wet out. So what I'm advising you is that it's going to be between 200,000 and 1.3 million, but I don't think it's going to hit the 1.3 million. I think that that's wrong. Now, we also have several others that pretty much are putting the death toll somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000. So let's play with that. And we're talking nationally, not just in the state of Utah, but nationally. Nationally. Okay. In the state of Utah, we were projecting somewhere around five to 10,000 deaths. Okay. for For doing nothing. So there's your do nothing scenario. Now, I'll also talk about the disease itself, of what we know at this point. We know that the disease does tend to, by just by the deaths that have been there and the accumulation of data, that the deaths tend to attack those that were already weak. 
So we know the old, the infirm, those with respiratory issues, those with other pre-existing conditions, were all being killed by this. We also knew at this time, kids were not being affected at all. We had no data on, on kids other than really bad pre-existing conditions. And I, as a health director, would tell you it is a statistical zero that that just there is no kids as far as a percentage wise who are dying from this. We also knew that young people were not dying from this. I would tell you that this is a very deadly disease. The vaccination is more than a year away because it's a brand new, it's a novel virus. So we have we're, we're about a year away from a from a vaccination and that it has a very long incubation period, which is what makes this thing so deadly. We also know that individuals go throughout this without symptoms so that they may be infectious, but they will exhibit no symptoms at all. So those are the things that we knew in March. And so you can ask me questions or something like that, but that's what I'm throwing at you right now. Okay. So the the projection is we're looking at 5,000 to how many? Thousand deaths 10, here, between five, five to ten thousand. Okay, one of the first questions I want to ask is how does that compare with the yearly death toll due to flu or other you know seasonal illnesses that come around? Much much higher. It's almost going to be twice as high. Okay, and and does it affect? Do, do those diseases affect primarily the same populations at threat under under this virus? Yes, the very similar type of attacks. The, the two things that make this disease deadly is it's, it's spread. Once it hits, it's more robust. But more importantly, it has ability to infect more than the flu virus does because that incubation period. Most flus, you're, you, you show signs right away. Then you put yourself in bed. You isolate yourself. So the spread of it is not as bad. The big thing about this disease is it's going to spread a lot faster and a lot bigger than the normal flu virus. Okay, so one of the first things that I would be wanting to know then, and we'll have to touch on this when we come back from the break, is I'd want to know uh, to what extent our hospitals are going to be able to handle this. So that's where we'll pick up when we come back. Gary Welch is my guest. We are wargaming what Governor Hyde would have done, given the information that, uh, that we had available back in March. I can tell right now I don't think I'm going to do very well. So my political career probably goes down in flames as of today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest. We are we are uh, kind of gaming the idea of what if what if I were governor? What would I have done if Governor Hyde was supposed to handle the COVID crisis based on what we knew back in March? What would I do? And Gary, one of the one of the questions I have for you as my health department head would be, how are our hospitals positioned to handle a, a crisis like this? So that's an excellent question, and it really gets down to the root of the problem, because um, at that time they had always talked about we, we need to flatten the curve and everything like that. So that's a really good question because that is an issue. Now, you know, the, 
the big thing about this is the intensive care units that are out there. This is where it really gets into a problem because we don't have that many intensive care units. Based upon the numbers that we're looking at, the intensive care units are going to be quickly overwhelmed. Now, we do have emergency disasters. So Utah is prepared for a disaster. So let's say like a meteor hit us or uh, we got attacked or something like that. We do have things in place for that, but here's the problem. We don't have the personnel because just of everything else that is going on in healthcare with the demand that's already being placed on our medical systems, we are pretty much maxed out on people. So the issue will be one of two things. One is our intensive care units will be quickly overwhelmed. We can move them into non-intensive care units, but when we do that, then we have problems of getting enough equipment, of making sure that we're isolating correctly and things like that. We, we do not have a good system at this point for a epidemic disease. We have lots of things for natural disasters ready to go. We can put up field hospitals and things like that. But when you're talking about a communicable disease, it gets a little more scary and, and shaky on that. So there is some major concerns we have, not so much that we would overwhelm our institutions, but overwhelm our people. We, we just, we can't do it. And because this is hitting everywhere, we can't go borrowing like we do with fires, where we go borrow somebody else's fire um, departments and firefighters when they're not having a fire and we do. This ain't going to happen because everybody, California's screaming, New York's screaming. They'll probably get them because they'll pay a lot of money to get these folks um, so we're kind of stuck there. Okay, and that was that was one of my other questions: is what what resources are available to us, you know, either from other states or from the federal government? So the federal government, and then that's a very good question too. So, Governor, if you declare a state of emergency, you must declare a state of emergency. Yeah, we have millions and millions of dollars coming towards us that the feds have, have approved for that. Okay. Boy, that would be a tough one to resist, too. That really would in the sense that, well, you know, this is going to cost money to mount a state response. Of course, there's always going to be a shortage of money. So looking for those federal funds, uh, the question is, are there incentives that are being provided? For instance, if we report this many you know, cases, does that mean we get more money? I could see that incentivizing some of the wrong things. All right. So here's the, here's the other thing. If the uh, if the disease is primarily affecting those who are elderly, vulnerable, um, with, you know, comorbidities, with life-threatening illnesses or chronic illnesses. How do we protect them? What's the best way to to protect them without unnecessarily disrupting the lives of those who are least at risk from this particular virus? Ah, see, another good question. So we'll, we'll start with the most effective Okay, so if your concern is that you want to save lives and you're going to say, okay, let's do the one thing that we can do where we have control over it and we can make this to the point that we will literally save thousands and thousands of lives, that is a total and complete shutdown for a minimum of two months, maybe three. And that's everybody in their home. Nobody leaves. Nobody goes to the store. We would have to set up. Now, we could use the monies to do this, but we would set up things like uh, we could have people like work at the grocery stores. 
but everything would be on a carry out basis. So you place your order um, via the phone or the internet. They would come out to your car. You would open up the trunk. They would put the food in there. They would shut it down. You don't have any contact. You keep your windows rolled up, that type of stuff. So you could get your essentials, but it would be very difficult. There would have to be some, we'd have to make sure nobody put runs on water, food, essential type of items. We might have to put some limits in place to do that, but that's what we could do. Same with medical personnel. We would have some issues with that of doing it. The biggest thing would be isolating our senior care centers. Um, We might have to like basically put people in there and say, guess what? You're staying there. You can't move. And we would have to supply them. But we're the best. Wow. That's that would get you your best results. And we will be done. If you did that. From that point on, we would have achieved um, we would be able to break the disease to the point that unless, you know, we get outsiders coming in to reintroduce it, but just internally within ourselves, we have achieved that kind of an immunity. Now, I'm, I'm going off of, off of an understanding of what was done uh, back in the 1950s. I can't remember the Correct. exact date, 1952 maybe, or uh, 1968 when the Hong Kong flu came through. Um, it, it appears to me that, that, that uh, in neither one of those cases were things shut down at that level. And, and I'm curious what makes this different. Why we would, in other words, the, the virus is going to do what viruses do. It's going to run its course. If, even if we all hunkered down, locked ourselves in a, in a bunker for, you know, two months, when people come out, the virus is still going to be there. It's still going to have to make its way through the population. If I'm understanding, you know, how we, how we address viruses in modern society. So did, did I, am, am I missing something there? Uh, is there something different about this virus that, uh, that it would respond differently than the Hong Kong flu did? Well, what you achieve by the complete isolation is you break the local community connection. Again, it can be introduced from the outside. We could have people fly in or drive in who have it, and then they re-expose everyone to go through that. But because we are not having that massive outbreak that's overwhelming our systems, it'll be a little bit better to control. We can also do what South Korea is doing, which is trace management, and that everybody that shows any kind of symptoms, we give them the test. Now, at this time, the test is very hard to find. The PPEs are very hard to find, so this will be a little bit of an issue for us. But what it does is it creates a management. We're not stopping this per se, what we're trying to do is create a really controlled scenario where we can isolate as much as possible. But you have to break that community first. Ninety okay. percent of this disease is going to spread through everyone who lives here, not from outsiders. So we break that. Then we just have to control the outsiders from coming in and what happens to that. So, you know, it would be a public education type of deal. But here's the point. You do that. We are talking about billions and billions of dollars and lost income. And I cannot guarantee your safety after that. And that was my next question was, what's the most destructive thing we could do to get to our desired result? So that would be it. (laughs) Okay, let's do that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the funny. Okay, so here's the second most destructive way to do this. And that is we have a temporary shutdown to try to slow it down. We're going to basically shorten the curve. 
and drew that and then shut businesses down, non-essentials businesses. But we keep things like grocery stores and whatnot open. See, I think one of the questions I would have to ask along the way here, too, is realistically, what do we have legitimate authority to, to do and to dictate? I'm all for getting the best information possible to the population and, and counseling them on this is what we know, this is what works. But I'd also like to know, legitimately, is this something that, that government can and should be doing? Because if it isn't, no matter how well intended, we probably ought not do it. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll continue our conversation. Gary Welch is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to remind you, please stop by my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out the show notes for today. There's always lots of great reading. I never have enough time to get to all of the different articles or commentaries that I've found. And, and I try to find stuff that's interesting and relevant that actually gives you something of substance, not just, you know, partisan yakety yak. And, and also, I, I will tell you, that's a place where you can find a way to access my sponsors, like my buddy John Staples at Alta Bank Mortgage. Boy, the, the rates are low right now. I mean, they are super low, low enough. They're not going to stay there indefinitely. So if you're if you're thinking about, you know, refinancing your mortgage, maybe uh, getting a new home mortgage, a lot of people buying homes, moving to Utah. John's the guy you want to talk to. Go to the Brian Click on today's show notes down at the bottom of the page. There's a link to take you directly to Alta Bank Mortgage and John will take it from there. Gary Welch is my guest, and we are talking about just kind of game gaming the idea of if I were governor, what would I have done? And I have to admit, Gary, I, I mean, I have hindsight. The stuff I'm talking about is trying to go off of hindsight. But this this is a no win situation in some ways. And no matter how heavily a governor responds or how lightly they respond, they're always going to be getting criticism from the Karens or the other people who want to say you did too much or you didn't do enough. I mean, it's it's a no-win situation. So at some level, I got to think that they, they'd have to ask, what are the collateral effects going to be for this chosen course of action? And I'm not so sure that, that anybody ever asked that or at least closely examined it. Right. And as your health director, I would tell you that if you do nothing, if you take the approach of um, this is, you know, a, a the, as a government, we're not really supposed to be involved with these things and do these things. If you do that, you will overwhelm the ICUs. There will be deaths because of that, and that will be laid on your feet. And that, that will be thousands of deaths that will be directly contributed to you and your decision of saying, let's do nothing. That is a, That is going to happen. If you do nothing, our ICUs will get overwhelmed. We will have at least hundreds of deaths, if not thousands or more deaths, because they did not have access to those ICUs and the medical care and whatnot, and that will be laid directly on your feet. But if the choice is to do something that actually goes beyond the proper scope of what government is supposed to do, I mean, come on, that's, that's a pretty tough decision. You're, you're stuck one way or the other. Correct. 
But here's the thing is the things that you can do politically are all available to you. The public is behind you. Your legislature is behind you. They will support you. Everybody's scared. So you will get all the support you need for the decisions you make other than do nothing. If you get if you do nothing, it's a lynch mob. But if you do something, in fact, they're demanding that you do something, you're pretty much got an open book to use. You can use your health department to push out health directives and go that route. If you're trying to isolate yourself, if you don't want to take the um, hit for it, you can bring it out through the health directives. It's not totally legal. It's not the way we're supposed to do things, but you got that option. You can also declare a state of emergency. The Constitution allows you to do that. So you can t- do that, and then your, your, your options are more broad. It does allow you to have some temporary 90-day type of scenario where you can do things. But you have to also understand that our current situation, the people are pretty much ready to let you do whatever you want. Boy, that would be awful tempting, right? I just, mm-hmm. I, I have to ask myself this, and this is again in hindsight, but uh, gee, um, grab my Rolodex. I'd like to talk to uh, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, <laughs> and I'd like to see what what she's doing. Because my my understanding is, and again, this is stepping back into into a, our current time. Um, South Dakota took a very, um, I think, hands off approach. They didn't ignore it. They didn't do nothing. But at the same time, they didn't uh, they didn't really, you know, go all in and start shutting down everything and closing down large swaths of the economy and ordering people about and mandating this and mandating that. And they seem to have survived quite well. Am I mistaken on this? No, but maybe you're you're you might be drawing the wrong conclusions from it in that. Um, since they did it, we can get away with it. You will notice that the larger the dense density of populations, the worse this thing is. So New York, California, they're really getting hit hard. States like Wyoming and North Dakota and South Dakota, stuff like that, where everybody's really spread out, there's really not these very large population centers, they can get away with that because even if they do nothing, uh, you know, they're going to have deaths. They're going to probably even have more than what would be normal, but it's really not going to achieve all that much simply because of this less density. Salt Lake City is not that case. We have a very dense population. We have a very, very large population. We will absolutely go out of control. Yeah, I'm struggling with that because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at countries like Sweden, which has you know, depending on the area that you're in, comparable population density. And yet uh, they seem to have weathered it quite well. And, and, and here's the, this is the kicker for me. The places that locked it down hard really didn't do that differently from the places that didn't, which leads me to question, is it really having the, the intended effect? And that's, that's where, I don't know, you and I may disagree on this, but um, I don't think... The states that locked it down the hardest. California is probably the best example of this right now. Nobody that I'm aware of has locked down harder. Nobody is struggling with a greater outbreak and death than uh, than California right now. And I don't know if they had advised them that, but if I was your health director, I would have absolutely told you this. 
and that if we take a semi-draconian measures well let's let's say let's well i'll recommend you recommend to me you say hey gary let's take the california approach here's what i would tell you you're not going to stop the disease you're not going to reduce the number of deaths all you're going to do is extend this out which is good because we lower the bar we won't overwhelm our icus and our hospitals but you're not saving lives the other issue with communicable diseases is that isolation is much harder the longer you do it. A couple of weeks, everybody's pretty good at that. We should have a high acceptance rate and a, and a high participation rate. A couple of months, it's going to drop and, and probably drop as 50%. Six months later, you probably will only have about a 20 to 30% participation rate. We know these from studies that have happened with other diseases and other things where other governments have tried to do these quarantines like the Ebola virus in Africa, where they had shut everything down and they tried to shut it down for months and months on end. After several months, it just broke down. Everybody started disobeying and going out anyways. So, you know, all you're going to do is delay things. And yet, again, are we taking into account the the other effects of this? Slowing down the disease is one concern, but uh, if if we manage to slow it down at the cost of destroying 50% or more of small businesses, have we really done the right thing? Correct. And, and so we can take some of that federal money and use it for maybe damages, but if you do a scenario where you close it down for a month or more at the at the time, the damage done will far exceed any kind of it'll it'll far exceed our coffers. You know, we've got a nice little um, budget up worked up. We've got some good money here. Then the federal money, it will basically far exceed both of those. We, we just would not be able to pay for it. And there will be strong economic consequences for doing a major shutdown for long periods of time. Boy, talk about a no-win situation. So, but here would be the thing. Okay, Governor, we do know that the vulnerable are very easily to be identified. It will be very easy to identify these people. Who are vulnerable. We already know who they are. We know the diseases that they have. We know the conditions that they have. We know their age group that they have. We've got some pretty good data in March right now that's telling us we know who to protect. That is a small minority of our population. It's it's somewhere around probably between 8 and 12% of the population that is vulnerable. So the rest, if, if we could do something with them, we would be able to use federal money and our, our budget money to take care of them and isolate them but not isolate everybody. Correct. Okay. Go ahead and allow the herd immunity to occur among the young and the non-vulnerables. Everybody just does their thing. Go out there, but we put up steps to make sure that everybody who is vulnerable is isolated. See, I like that. I like that scenario a whole lot better. And I have to wonder why it wasn't followed. We've got to take there a break. Gary Welch is my guest. When we come back, we've got a couple other things we're going to touch on. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest. Gary, thank you for for gaming out that scenario of Governor Hyde trying to respond unsuccessfully, I might add, to the uh, <laughs> to the pandemic. Uh, but uh, I, I want to move on to a couple of other things. I just got a notification from my friend Ralph DeLucas. Apparently, uh, WikiLeaks just dumped all of their files online. Everything from Hillary Clinton's emails uh, to a whole bunch of other stuff. Holy cow. Somebody's going to have some good reading to do for Christmas. <laughs> They'll be spending their Christmas break getting caught up on all the uh, all the latest uh, gossip, I suppose. One of the things that bothers me, though, is, uh, is even with like organizations like WikiLeaks, who I do like, I, I do appreciate what they do. I'm not one of those individuals that says um, um, what they are doing is treasonous or anything like that. I'm one of those individuals that transparency is always good. The problem that I have is, does it really help? I mean, let, let's let's say that we've got Hillary's emails. Big deal. We already got enough evidence to put her on trial. There you, is you no, would think. Well, and there and is. Look at look at uh, you know uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr. You know, right. saying the other day, well, you know, there's no reason to look into Hunter Biden's, you know, uh, case. There's there's no reason to look into what he called, I think, widespread election fraud. And it's like, really? Really? Uh, what, a, yeah. what a team player. <laughs> your <laughs> your handlers must be very proud of you. And and this is where we have got with our government now in that there is this impunity that they do where it's even obvious now they they've no they used to hide it and squirrel it away and you know do the old sleight of hand tricks and now they're just going to like nah we're just going to flat out tell you we're not we're not going to do this or we are going to do this and there's nothing you can do about it the that only bothers th- me. the only thing that i really resent is the idea that you and i are expected to play along like oh this is how it's supposed to be no everything is great everything's working just exactly as as it's supposed to because it, I'm going, no, it's not. <laughs> this is this right. this is a perversion of what government is supposed to be doing. And so I, I'm grateful for those who have stood up. You know, Julian Assange, people could say what they want about him, but uh, no one can ever say, well, he was never willing to, you know, have any skin in the game. Oh, I think he's shown pretty conclusively. He's had skin in the game and probably paid a higher price than most would be willing to. Right. Well, the, the the first step to killing cockroaches is turn the lights on them, and so you can see where they're they're scurrying all about, and that's what he's doing. Is he's shining that light on it? I don't know how much of it is true. I mean, everything else has to go through a review, um, you know. And and you know me, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. So no. when I see things like an FBI sniper was shooting everyone in Las Vegas, I tend to go, and that's not really. I don't think what's happening. But at the same time, there's a lot of things like I would I would be very interested in reading Hillary's emails. I, I think that they would be very revealing. But yeah. again, who's, who's going to do anything about it? Even if it was like she comes out and says, yeah, I just destroyed all of those hard drives. And we've got proof of that. Who cares? That's not any more information than what we already have to put her on trial. And yet there hasn't even been a warrant issued. Yeah, it does leave the question, but will anything be done? And at this point, it's not looking very much like anything's going to be done. Right. And Hunter Biden, I mean, 
just on the public information that we already know, it deserves a warrant. It deserves at least a major investigation. Where is it? And why? The big question we should be asking ourselves is why? Why aren't they doing that? Oh, that's I think that's a fair question. Now, I want to shift gears here. We've got just a couple of minutes left, but um, I noticed, uh, I, I think at the end of the year here, the Salt Lake Tribune is doing uh, their uh, Who Should Be Utah's Person of the Year. And I noticed that our friend Eric Mutsos is one of those who has been nominated as Utah of the Year. And given Eric's efforts in the uh, you know Utah business revival, I'm thinking that, uh, yeah, he might be actually a really good choice for that. Your thoughts? I do. I absolutely believe that, mainly because both of his, um, what he was trying to do, he was working on a good cause of trying to open up the businesses, expose this for what it was. But more importantly, he was effective. And this is my big thing. Being right but not being effective just means you get to say, I told you so, when they come busting down your door to haul you off to the concentration camp. You've got to be effective. You've got to be able to cause change and, and get results. And I think he did. I, I, it, it didn't stop everything, but I think he had impact. I think they would have done worse without him if he did not get those, those organizations out there and get the people rallied. Yep, I would agree. And so I, I'm, I'm one who thinks that uh, I, I think he did a lot of good work. I, I know that he has his, his share of detractors, and, and this is the, the really tough thing. I've noticed this not with Eric so much, but, I, but I've seen it with a lot of other people. As you start to become um, well-known, maybe even famous, it seems like for a lot of people, that's that's almost more than they can handle. There's a shift that takes place. And what started out is, hey, look, this is a really, you know, this is a genuine person trying to uh, stand for a cause or trying to, to promote something that uh, really has legitimacy. It becomes more about, uh, hey, I've got a brand to maintain here, you know, <laughs> so I got to do what's right for my brand as opposed to they, they forget about the the message. And, and instead, it, it becomes about them. I don't know if that makes sense. I have found that politics always is centered around ego, which is a selfish centric type of mentality and personality trait. But I've never met a candidate that wasn't you know, one of the most egotistical people that I've ever met. I've never met a political figure like, a you know, someone that's a very famous politically who did not have a very strong ego and a very strong person. I think it comes with it. And unfortunately it does, you know, you just have to take that along with it. And, and Eric is another good quick case in point. I think there's, there's a lot of things he did to benefit himself more than his cause. I think if he was truly into the cause, he would have opened it up more. He would have shared the wealth per se with a lot more people who he didn't because he was trying to promote himself but nevertheless, I cannot deny the good that he's done. Yep. Well, and I think there's a cautionary tale here, just so people don't think, well, you guys are piling on Eric. How, how dare you, you know, talk about him like this? It's this is not about, uh, you know, is Eric a good guy or a bad guy? It's like, let's learn some of the lessons. And, and in some things, he was extremely effective. Um, but but understand. It is no small thing to, to stand up for something and uh, you're going to take hits you're going to be questioned people are going to uh they're going to question every motive 
and, and want to, you know, to spin it in the worst possible way. Well, you know, the only reason you're doing this is because of, you know, what whatever motive they assign. It's really tough to keep um, to keep your mind on what you're doing, which I guess is why you don't see a lot of people lining up to, to be, you know, a public figure, particularly on controversial issues. And we tend to take politics into central figures. You know, it's always about him or her. It's never about us. You never hear of a really good, strong political organization where it's us. And, and so, like, if, if his cause would have been our cause and all of us shared into it equally and all of us were, were getting exposed to it equally and all of us were participating equally – then it turns into a much different animal. But we just tend to, in politics, we tend to always just put it into one individual. You be the leader. You be the, the, the main person. And we'll throw everything on you to do so. And when you do that, I mean, you start believing your own hype. You start believing, you know, that you are all this. You start thinking about how can I benefit from this? And all these things come into play. I, and, you know, we, we talked about the break uh, during the break about how many guys who have a good cause come out and write a book right after that. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, it's almost expected, right? In fact, yeah. in fact, some would say, hey, Gary, that's that's the key to legitimacy. How's anybody going to know you're legitimate if you don't have a book? So I don't know. I, I mean, well, I, I have heard it said, and I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. If you want to be taken seriously, you've got to be able to point to what have you written? Where have you been published? And if you've written a book, I think the case could be made that, yeah, maybe you, you have more credibility than the person who's just, you know, standing on a stump hollering. Right. And you could sell the book for five bucks and really get your message out. Or you could sell it for 13 and make a cool million. Yeah. But, but here's the catch. Who are people going to listen to? The one who's on Oprah as a part of, their, of her book club? Or the one who's selling it for five bucks to get the message out, you know, but doesn't have the fame? I mean, do you see my point? I do. I do. <laughs> Gary, thanks so much. Have a Merry Christmas, by the way, and I look forward to catching up with you uh, after the holidays. Absolutely, sir. This is The Brian Hyde Show.